Said, but you should know it. Hello, prestige heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessler. Here, it's always too early in the morning, right. even at this late hour. Derek Davison, and we are excited to welcome back to the news this week. Derek, let's get started with Syria and its Arab League invites. Uh, yes, Arab League foreign ministers met in Cairo over the weekend and voted on Sunday to readmit the Syrian government to the Arab League uh, without precondition, apparently, and uh, with immediate effect. Bashar al-Assad then got his formal invitation sometime after that, sometime between Sunday and Wednesday when his government made it public, a formal invitation to the leader summit, the leadership summit on May 19th uh, of the Arab League in Riyadh. Um, I say no preconditions. This is somewhat surprising because the... uh, bulk of the commentary on this uh, had sort of shifted from Arab countries are just racing to normalize relations with Assad. They can't, you know, can't get enough of that Bashar magic to they're slowing things down. There's still some objections. Uh, Qatar, for example, the Qatari government says it will never uh, basically never normalize relations. I don't know if they have some red line that they'd be willing to cross, uh, cross but they, they've made it clear that they're not interested in normalizing relations at this point. Uh, and attention had shifted to an initiative by the Jordanian government to condition Assad's re-entry into the Arab League on, for example, dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis, which is something that's, of course, very near and dear to the Jordanian government's okay. interests. God damn it, Siri. Check it out. Sorry, Danny. Leave it in. Leave it in. <laughs> God damn you. <laughs> So you said Syria, and that's yeah, got Siri going. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, now I'm off track. Okay, yeah, right. The Jordanian government had had uh, been pushing this initiative that would condition Assad's re-entry on the uh, a resolution to the refugee issue and on Assad cracking down on captagon trafficking, which is something that is quite uh, of interest to uh, the Gulf states in particular, which is the main destination for all the captagon that comes out of Syria. None of that seems to be in this deal. They just voted to readmit Syria, period. Although uh, there have been a couple of incidents since then. The Jordanian military conducted a couple of airstrikes in Syria earlier this week. One on a drug facility in southern Syria and another that killed a somewhat notorious drug trafficker in southern Syria that one uh, wonders if they were enabled in some way by the Assad government as part of some backroom uh, kind of angle to this uh, this readmission. I should also note on the normalization front, uh, the Saudi and Syrian governments announced on Tuesday that they've agreed to reopen their respective embassies. This is something that was reported about a month and a half ago, I think, by Reuters that they were on track to do this. Uh, but this is sort of the official acknowledgement of that. Uh, there's no indication actually when, or they didn't offer any indication exactly when the embassies are going to be back up and running. I assume there's some uh, technical work that has to be done before they can get the facilities going again. But those 
uh, embassies have been closed since the start of the Syrian civil war. And, and Saudi Arabia is, of course, the big prize as far as normalizing relations with the, the Arab world. So uh, things are looking good for the Syrians uh, these days. At least the Syrian government. I don't want to suggest they're looking good for the Syrian people, I guess. No, of course not. Does this have anything to do with the recent China moves or is this something totally disconnected? No, I mean, it's it's enabled as uh, a lot of things are. Diplomacy around Yemen, for example, enabled by the Saudi-Iran thaw in their diplomatic relations, which was uh, brokered in part by China, building on the work of some other uh, countries, Iraq and Oman, for example. Um, so it's, it's part of, there, there's an independent strain here. Certainly Arab countries, the, the UAE spearheaded this, but, uh, Arab governments have been pushing towards, uh, on the whole, pushing toward normalization with Assad for a while now. Uh, you know, he won the civil war. There's, uh, isolating him and pretending he doesn't exist, doesn't seem to be doing anything. So, uh, there's a certain logic to that, but it's also, I think, been sped up because of the Saudi-Iran rapprochement, if you want to call it that, uh, which kind of uh, clears away some obstacles to particularly Saudi-Syrian normalization. Okay, thanks, Derek. Let's stay in the region and talk about the fighting going on in Gaza. Yes, uh, it's been three days now of Israeli bombardments uh, as we're recording this on Thursday. Three days of Israeli bombardments in Gaza. Uh, at least 26 people have been killed. That number may rise by the time anybody listens to this. The main target seems to be senior leadership in Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, branch. A number of them have been killed in these strikes by all accounts, uh, but also a number of civilians, family members of these people, children uh, have been killed as well. The response from PIJ and possibly some other Gazan militant groups, I don't think Hamas, uh, but some other groups that, that may be operating with sort of a tacit kind of approval uh, from Hamas, uh, has been to fire rockets, which is always the go-to. Uh, they fired hundreds of them at this point out of Gaza in retaliation. Uh, there's been some reports of damage to Israeli homes and you know other property. And yeah, essentially at this point, um, it's still going on. There have been ceasefire efforts by spearheaded primarily by the Egyptian and Jordanian governments. Uh, the French and German governments are uh, reportedly involved in this as well to no uh, real avail. Uh, in terms of the Israeli side of this, the it's interesting to, to note, I guess, that National Security Minister Inamar Ben-Gvir, who was last seen ridiculing Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, last week for not bombing Gaza enough uh, has and, and was threatening at one point to even quit Netanyahu's coalition, which would have collapsed the coalition and uh, forced a new election, they're now getting along again. So Ben Kavir is apparently happy with with how things have gone the last couple of days. Uh, so you know there are people dead, but on the on the plus side, uh, the uh, ridiculously far right government that Netanyahu has has put together is is everybody's back on the same page. So uh, you know, so it's a it's a win win for as far as I'm concerned, uh, other than the the, the dead people. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's all upside. 
Has there been any international response to any of this or not really as usual? Um, well, the international response, as I said, has come from uh, regional efforts with uh, the Egyptians and the Jordanians, both of whom have some uh, connection to the, the parties in Gaza, Egypt in particular, uh, to try and negotiate a ceasefire. Uh, there's been some European involvement, uh, from what I can tell. I don't know how, how much. The United States has done what it always does in these situations and called on both sides to stop the fighting, even though one side started it and one side is doing all the killing. Uh, we, we want both sides to, to really uh, take a pause and, and stop the madness. Uh, I've seen indications that like PIJ has uh, expressed an interest in a ceasefire and openness to a ceasefire. I don't uh, know that to be, you know, know that for a fact, but um, it does not appear that the Israelis are, are done. So whatever they're, whatever it is that they're trying to do here, uh, whether it's just kill as many PIJ leaders as they can or, uh, you know, create a new era of good feelings in, in the Israeli uh, right or, or uh, politically, uh, whatever it is, they don't seem to be done with it. So I expect this will continue for at least a little while. And that always means the possibility of a full-blown escalation to, to s- something like past Gaza conflicts that we have seen, uh, which... Uh, I guess you could call wars, although again, they're they're fairly one-sided affairs. It just seems like there's less and less international attention being paid to this issue over the past five or so years. It's something that I've noticed. There's a nihilism amongst the so-called international community um, in relation to this, and uh, it, it, the nihilism sort of was raised um, in the wake of Ukraine. So that's why I asked that question. It's it's there is, and I, I mean, I think it started. Uh, a while ago, th- there's an acknowledgement, I think, tacitly, that there's not going to be a second Palestinian state, and nobody really wants to talk about what that means uh, for Precisely. Israel. Liberal Zionism is fully right. dead at this point. Um, and, y- you know, Ukraine certainly has sucked attention for, away from everything. It sucked attention away from Afghanistan and the humanitarian crisis there and, and you know, m- many other things. Uh, but I also think the Abraham Accords... Uh, created a, a, a or kind of energized if that's if you can apply that apply that to this concept kind of expanded this this feeling of apathy or uh, just kind of nihilism as you put it uh, in this because even if if even the governments of, of the Arab states in the region don't care what happens to the Palestinians and are normalizing relations with Israel uh, what's the point like why why I think that's the feeling in uh, Europe. That's the feeling in the U.S. Uh, what? Why should we pay any attention to this? We're getting what we want anyway, which is the Arabs and uh, and Israel to to kind of uh, cozy up to one another. Now, again, the 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 Saudi Iran thing may shake this up at some level because that's going in the opposite direction from what Israel and and the U.S. and and European governments would like to see. But it's um, too early to know. I think. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Sudan. There's not a whole lot to say here. Um, I did want to do an update just because the, the conflict is ongoing, but it's basically the same update as last time. There is a ceasefire in place. Uh, was supposed to expire today, actually, as we're recording this. I haven't seen any indication as to whether it's been renewed, and I don't know that it matters because uh, the military, the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces have haven't honored a single one of the ceasefires that they've uh, engaged in yet so i don't see any reason to to particularly care 
Uh, one development that did happen over the weekend, both sides sent representatives to Saudi Arabia to discuss the ceasefires that they keep violating. Uh, that Those talks have gone in a couple of uh, directions. One, uh, uh, trying to establish a- an actual ceasefire where they stop firing at one another uh, and uh, you know maybe eventually engage in, in something like peace talks on ending the conflict. Uh, that's been uh, totally unsuccessful as far as I know. The other uh, kind of uh, slice of this has been uh, UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Martin Griffiths, is also attending these talks in Saudi Arabia and was pushing for, at the very least, opening humanitarian corridors, so places uh, where uh, that would both sides would agree not to fight in certain areas so that uh, humanitarian goods could be brought to people who are stuck in Khartoum, in particular, and, and its uh, environs, uh, or elsewhere, who are you know desperately in need of of assistance, um, and that would give people living in those areas or stuck in those areas a chance to evacuate if they want to, uh, with somewhat you know some some assurance of safety. Uh, that hasn't gone anywhere either, as far as I know. Uh, the death toll at this point uh, from from the UN or the casualty count is up over 600, uh, another 5,100 wounded. These are the uh, the estimates from the UN. They're probably uh, too low because so much of the the fighting is you know so much of these places are still in in kind of serious military situations. So it's difficult to uh, collect information. Um, it's a bit easier to estimate the number of people who have been displaced, and that stands now at around 850,000 to 900,000 people, uh, about 150,000 of them refugees, meaning people who have left Sudan, across borders into to, uh, countries surrounding Sudan. And uh, the UN, again, estimates about 700,000 people displaced inside Sudan. Uh, there have been reports of intercommunal fighting, uh, particularly in uh, White Nile State, which is in southern Sudan, uh, this week. Uh, I've seen reports of fighting in North Kordofan province as well. I don't know if that's connected to the, the RSF military conflict. The, the fighting in White Nile is not directly connected, but it's more like, uh, you know, there's now a, a total security vacuum here and, and uh, local grievances can get started and kind of kind of ignite more easily uh, and spin out of control more easily in that environment. So what's going on in Ukraine recently, Derek? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the head of the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. It's like days of our lives with this guy. He's back in a feud with the Russian military. It's like on again, off again, a feud where he keeps complaining that his fighters aren't getting enough ammunition. Uh, on Friday, he threatened to pull his fighters out of Bakhmut, which is where Wagner has been sort of spearheading the Russian advance. Over the weekend, he then said, uh, well, we've gotten, okay, we've been promised the ammo we want, so I'm not going to, you know, not going to withdraw. Everything's fine. Now, again, as we're recording this on, on Thursday, he's back to complaining that they're not getting uh, enough ammunition, threatening to withdraw, and accusing Russian, regular Russian military units of routing, basically retreating from the city and from v- Wagner Group's flanks, leaving them exposed to Ukrainian forces. Uh, there may be something to this. Uh, it, obviously, anything is is difficult to uh, verify in this environment, but the Ukrainians themselves have claimed 
that they routed a Russian brigade uh, in Bakhmut and drove it back uh, a couple of kilometers along the front line. The Russian government hasn't said anything uh, that could be taken as confirmation, but uh, it also hasn't denied the reports of, of this uh, unit routing. And, and I think the uh, Kremlin spokesperson, uh, Dmitry Peskov, did say that the invasion is a very difficult operation uh, on Wednesday, which may be a confirmation of sorts, uh, probably as close as they could get. Um, the other thing of note in Ukraine is uh, that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unfortunately once again back in the news. This is uh, this plant has been you know, kind of uh, on the front lines, which has raised a lot of concerns about some potential uh, disaster happening in what is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. It's offline now. It's not generating electricity, but there's still, uh, you know, obviously a lot of nuclear material on this site that needs to be maintained or else it will melt down. Uh, there are reports now that the Russians are evacuating people out of the town of Enerhodar, which is uh, right next to the power plant that could include uh, workers from the power plant. Uh, so the, there's a potential here that uh, or there's some fear, I guess, that the power plant could be left uh, essentially unmonitored, un, you know, unoccupied, uh, which would be a very dangerous situation. Presumably, this is because the Russians think that the big Ukrainian spring counteroffensive is going to come through Zaporizhia, which is not out of the question if they do actually launch a new offensive. That's, that's one uh, possible place that they could, they could attempt it. Uh, Prigozhin, interestingly, has claimed that the counteroffensive is already underway around Bakhmut and that that's what drove this Russian unit away from the city and uh, that the Ukrainians have made some gains along his flanks. Uh, but the Ukrainians, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday uh, said, we haven't launched any counteroffensive and we're not going to anytime soon. We need more time to pull things together. So uh, who knows? That could be a smokescreen or... Uh, Maybe uh, it's just fog of war and everybody's kind of panicking. What does this suggest about the war? Because last week has had a lot of confusing news, as I think this update indicates. At the at the basic level, this has become a trench war. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not like trench warfare a la World War One, but they're stuck on on their lines. Whatever movement is happening is is very uh, localized. It's it's uh, you know grinding out a kilometer here maybe or a kilometer there or even less a couple of city blocks in a day uh so nothing is happening really and and i think one of the the problems with a lot of the analysis that that comes out from uh there was a big a good piece from from bob wright in his newsletter about the institute for the study of war which is kind of be clowning itself here with pro-Ukraine cheerleading as, as this conflict has gone on. One of the problems is that ISW and, and organizations like that are putting out these daily updates about what's going on every single day. And, and you want them to be meaty. You want them to look, you know, to, to be hefty. Uh, you can't just say, you know, nothing really happened today. They're, they're kind of bashing against one another and, and that's all there is. Uh, and that's a paragraph and nobody, nobody wants that product. Nobody's going to be interested in that product. So you pad it out with, you know, a lot of speculative, uh, I guess you could call it analysis. I don't know if it passes that test, uh, but, uh, you know, you pad it out with a lot of stuff that, that creates this confusion because it's, 
it, it is speculative. It's not based on anything confirmed. Uh, and so you're just dealing in kind of uh, what you think is happening or what you hope may be happening uh, as opposed to what is actually happening. And, and that's where I think a lot of the con- confusion comes from because new, the media then takes these things, these products, and reports them as fact. Uh, you know, that, that's what happened with uh, this false flag uh, claim about the, the drone attack on the Kremlin. Uh, ISW put, put out something that was very much just like, uh, you know, gee, we think it might be a false flag. We don't really have any evidence of that, but, uh, you know, it strikes us that this could be a, could be a false flag operation. And a, a lot of places that rely on, uh, their work just kind of ran with it as news and, and instead of, uh, what it is, which is speculation. Uh, and, you know, you get, you get sloppy reporting as a result. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Let's talk now about the Chile Constitutional Assembly election. So people who have followed this, uh, the Chilean constitutional saga will know that last year, uh, the uh, country, there was an assembly that put together a brand new constitution that was supposed to replace the Augusto Pinochet era constitution. Uh, That document was put to a plebiscite last year and resoundingly defeated. Uh, Gabriel Boric, the, the president of Chile, who had hung a lot of his domestic agenda on getting that constitution passed, then got the parties together and they all agreed to give it another try under a, a significantly changed uh, procedure under which there would be a smaller, an election for a smaller constitutional assembly. Uh, the charter would actually be drawn up by a panel of experts appointed by the Chilean uh, Congress, and then it would be voted on, uh, measures would be voted on by this uh, this assembly. Well, the election for the assembly took place on Sunday, and it was a resounding victory for the right, a far-right bloc uh, led by a former presidential candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, uh, won with, uh, they won, I think, 23 seats uh, in what is a 51 seat, I believe, assembly. Uh, there's a center right block that has 11 seats coming out of this election. So to the extent that those two, uh, not all that dissimilar factions will be able to agree on things, uh, they're going to control the process because it's a three fifths majority, uh, that's required to get anything into the new constitution. Boris's block emerged with 16 seats. So they don't even have a, a veto over this. It's it's not uh, great news for him, not great news for anybody who was hoping for a progressive replacement to the Pinochet charter. Uh, it's likely that whatever uh, these guys design, and again, it's going to be written by a panel of experts report, uh, that, that's being appointed by a conservative Congress. So it's likely that whatever emerges from this will be fairly similar to what Chile already has. Uh, there may be some concessions offered in a uh, progressive direction to get a broader, uh, to get broad public support. Uh, but in other ways, there may be some things that that are even more conservative than Chile's current uh, constitution. It, it remains to be seen, but but certainly not. Uh, it, it will not be the kind of progressive grail or whatever people were <laughs> hoping for in the last uh, in the last uh, process. Does this mean anything for the second pink tide, so-called? I mean, it's a setback, um, certainly. Boris has, has 
his domestic agenda is largely stalled out anyway. Um, so, uh, because it, mostly because of opposition in Congress. So I don't know that, uh, I don't know how much of an effect this vote will have, but certainly what overall is happening in Chile has been a, uh, a, a, a bit of a backlash, I would say to the pink tide, uh, which is still going, you know, elsewhere. I mean, you've got Lula in Brazil, you've got uh, Gustavo Petro in, in Colombia, although he's also having some problems getting his domestic agenda implemented and, and is uh, kind of stuck in negotiations with uh, a couple of armed groups to try and get peace deals. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of running into the realities of governing uh, in societies that maybe are not uh, prepared for some of this stuff. Uh, so, you know that's that would be the the main my main takeaway, but I don't uh, I don't know what it means yet for the broader kind of regional wave. Certainly, they have run into some some difficulties, but uh, you know there's nothing that says they can't uh, overall at least uh, kind of emerge from this and and continue pushing things to the left. Thanks, Derek. Let's turn now to our final topic, and that is Pakistan. And there's been a lot going on in Pakistan recently. Yeah, we've come all the way full circle, actually. Uh, Pakistani authorities on Tuesday finally made good on their uh, threat to arrest former Prime Minister Imran Khan, ostensibly on corruption charges, uh, really because he and the Pakistani security establishment are uh, at odds with one another, and Khan keeps... Uh, criticizing them publicly, which they don't like very much. They arrested him. Uh, his supporters immediately, almost immediately took to the streets. The, his party, the Pakistan Tehreek and Saf Party, asked supporters to basically shut down Pakistan. Uh, and they did, they did the best they could. They uh, blockaded highways, roads in several major cities. There were attacks on a number of military facilities. Uh, at least one person was killed uh, and and several more wounded in this uh, initial situation. The the Pakistani government uh, on Wednesday, as Khan was being formally indicted, called in the military to deal with the protests, which is a potentially ominous development. The governments of three of Pakistan's four provinces, uh, Baluchistan, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and Punjab, all requested federal military support to deal with the protests. And then on Thursday, uh, this happened not long before we recorded this. I, can't, I don't even know what the uh, the repercussions of this are going to be. But the Pakistani Supreme Court ruled that Khan's arrest was illegal and that he should be released uh, immediately. So uh, he's, I guess, a free man at this point. I don't know that to be a fact. All I know is that the, the court has issued this ruling. I don't know what that means yet for the protests. I don't know if that's going to bring the PTI supporters in off the streets. Uh, dozens, maybe hundreds of uh, PTI supporters have been arrested uh, amid all of this uh, protesting and uh, the clashes with the security forces. I don't know if they're going to be released. Logically, you would think if the arrest of Khan was uh, unlawful and should never have happened, then these people should never have been arrested because they shouldn't have had to go out in the street and protest. So they should be released, but I doubt it. Uh, who knows? But again, a lot of is, is up in the air right now because this is really just happened. I just saw this a little bit before we recorded. So uh, I really don't know what's going on at this point, but it seems like the, this is taking another turn, potentially one that could de-escalate the situation, but we'll see. 
Thanks, Derek, and we'll keep you updated. Everyone, thank you for listening. Remember to like and subscribe, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.